Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here as ever with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, what say you? Hello, Rachel. I have nothing to say today. (laughs) All right, well, then let's get to it. All right, we've got Rob Lee. He's the founder and CEO at Dragos, an industrial cybersecurity company on a mission to safeguard civilization, joining us today. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me, y'all. So excited. So, where to start? I think we were talking a little bit before we got on, um, you know, first the congratulations on the 200 million funding. That was fantastic. And, and with folks like BlackRock and, and you had some really interesting observations, you know, that kind of came out of that, that I would love you could share with our listeners. Sure. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of folks in the industry today, whether it's policymakers, CEOs, or practitioners um, that are asking the question around like, why now? Like what's going on in OT security? It seems like all of a sudden it just kind of blew up uh, in the discussion and and Singapore has their OT national plan. Mm -hmm. Australia has their mandatory reporting laws, ICS specific national security memorandum at the beginning of this year. There's just like a a lot happening. Rob, do you think Um, the Colonial Pipeline accelerated that? I think it didn't hurt the discussion for sure, but I, but I actually think Solar Winds was more impactful. Interesting. Um, okay. And and you know a lot of the reporting publicly on Solar Winds was about compromises on the IT side of the house, but there's nothing actually all that different about Solar Winds compared to things we've seen before. If you think about it, like there's a lot of like hoopla made about it in the media, right. but it was like nah, okay, espionage. Right. But what wasn't covered, and I do think this is the piece that made everybody uncomfortable is that there was a lot of compromises of the OEM's original equipment manufacturers themselves and service providers that led to uh, SolarWinds in the OT networks getting directly accessed and compromised at a control layer. So sometimes when we talk about compromising critical infrastructure, you have to ask, is it IT or is it OT? But even in OT, it's like, okay, was it like a data historian or did you actually have control? Right. And what happened in SolarWinds is the adversary had remote direct control over critical portions of critical infrastructure, and that terrified everybody because for years we've taken this sort of like segment firewall whatever approach prevention only approach to ot and even when we knew the software the software version the forensics we knew everything to look for we still couldn't in most of the ot networks and that lack of detection response capability from policy level is what i think really scared folks but but writ large, I think the the difference of what's happening lately is not any one event. Right. Um, I think the main thing is um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the United States started talking about critical infrastructure, cyber protection, um, no CEO or board was dismissive of that. So, hey, national security, military, president, right. everything, I get it. Let's go reduce cyber risk. Right. And, and from a board level, it was go reduce cyber risk. It wasn't IT or OT, right. it was just reduce cyber risk. But at the time, related to culture, connectivity, state of the industry, whatever, everything went to the enterprise. And the OT strategy was segmented off. Right. Um, but while these companies go through, call it whatever you want, digital transformation, industry 4.0, whatever, as they go through connectivity and transformation, we're seeing that that strategy was not effective uh, or not good for where we're going. And boards and presidents and congressmen and everybody else are waking up to the fact of, wait, what do you mean the side of our business that isn't the critical infrastructure is a side that we spend all the money on? And so what I think we're seeing is a pendulum swing back of uh, a CEO and a board not knowing they needed to specify the difference between IT and OT. Now there's a, oh, I guess we have to specify, please go reduce the risk on the side of the house that generates revenue, environmental impact, and safety impacts. Please go put focus on that. I think I think that's what we're seeing. And why do you think that was missed for so long, right? The, the board, the CEO expected, hey, we're a critical manufacturer or whatever. We have we have equipment that has to work. We have mm-hmm. something, yeah. you know, colonial pipeline. Yeah, I We've think got to pump gas. Like move it I, through I the pipeline. I think there's a lot of things that went into it. Um, so not to overgeneralize, but I think the two big things that hurt was at the time, again, early 2000s, late 90s, when people really started focusing on this probably for the first time in mass. Um, the industry was in a different place. So I don't think it was anything malicious. The IT staff of those companies went to their operations staff and said, hey, 
we're supposed to protect you. Yeah, what do you, what do you want to do? Yeah, exactly. And the operations staff wasn't being malicious either. It was just like, hey, we're not connected. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't use the internet. We don't access other systems. Like, these are my systems. Right. We got them. Yeah, just go do your stuff. Like, we get it. You're resource constrained. We're resource constrained. Go, go do your thing. And and that turned into a narrative that carried 20 years, but there really? was a story that probably only lasted 10. And so for the last like 10 plus years, probably 15 to, for most industries, that's not been true, but it hasn't caught up with people right. yet. And that leads, I think, to the second point, which is at a board level, I and, and I'm not trying to put anybody down here by any means, but the CISO reporting to the board and, and talking to the board is a new phenomenon in security. That's yeah. only the past right. couple of years in mass. And a lot of those CSOs, in, in my opinion, don't know how to talk to the board. Right. And a lot of the conversation they have is look at our NIST cybersecurity framework, look at our scoring, look at our, our FICO-like score, look, here's how many scans we saw. It's like numbers and metrics and like right. trying to chase financial, you know, oh, the finance people show metrics, we got to show metrics. Right. And and at a CEO and board level, they look at that and go, oh, well, we're good. Right. But we they got, don't We got a lot of data. We, we seem like they, they yeah, seem like they have but, a handle on it. Yeah. But but they don't stop and ask, wait, is that all of our business or is that just the enterprise? Right. And I've been in a lot of these board meetings lately where that question gets asked and the CSO is like, well, no, that's just the enterprise. Like, wait, what? Like, you mean all of this stuff we've been seeing was about the non-critical portion of our company? And it's, it's kind of this awakening yeah. moment happening at these boards. But who owns, this is going to be a tough question to answer, I think, who owns the OT side of a given business normally? Right. Yeah. Most people haven't defined it as the problem. Right. Uh, and so there is an expectation at the board level for most of these companies that the security owner owns the risk. And that's a bad expectation. The security owner being whether it's a CSO, CIO or CISO. So somebody on the traditional CRO. IT side, the same person who owns the risk for email. Correct. Typically and is so thought they, to they own that. Whoever that is, you're, you got it. But, okay. but that's a bad expectation even when it comes to enterprise risk. Like the CSO or CSO or CIO does not own the risk. They're the advisor right. of what risk they see. And then the CEO and the board own the risk and go resource across the business to implement. And, and so you're always going to have the VP of operations or some you know plant manager or so forth that's supposed to own the risk of their asset. But you've got to be able to create the understanding at a board level of what risks do we accept? Right. Which one do we want to be prepared for? And a lot of my conversations there around scenarios, screw the metrics. Right. Like, what does an OT specific ransomware case look like? What does a safety system compromise look like? What, what is the scenario that we want to go through? And what are the controls that the security advisors in collaboration with operations would say are important? And then it's a binary discussion. Do you want to invest in that or not? It's not, well, I can nickel and dime on this piece or I want to have a 35 versus a 36. It's, do you want to be covered across prevention, detection, and response right. against that scenario? Yes or no. And if so, go invest in it. And so it's, the, the answer is going to be there's collaboration, but the risk owners are the operation side of the house. And you'll never get out of that. Right. And that's appropriate, but they have to be partnered with a CSO or similar and that CSO side or similar has to understand the difference. Because yeah. if you're just copy and pasting your IT governance strategy or IT security controls in the plant, you're going to cause more damage than Russia. Right. So I, I, you mentioned pre prevention, detection, and response, right? Prevention, stop it from happening. Detection, if it does happen for whatever reason, know it. And then response, when it happens, how quickly can you do something about that? Do you find that the typical OT operator thinks in that mindset? I mean, to me, that's more no. of an IT security mindset. We've been talking about that in some form, pick your company, right. you know, detect correct, protect detect correct, whatever you want to call it for a while. Do OT operators think about it that way? Or do they just think I've got to keep, I, I got to keep the machinery moving? In a security construct, they do not. Yeah. And so, but I would actually argue that most IT security people don't actually articulate that either. Right. Um, they may be able to say it, but if you look at where their investments go, it is massive prevention bias across the community. Mm -hmm. And and they're not idiots. It's what they've been told to do. If you look at IEC 62443 as a standard, if you look at NIST cybersecurity framework, if you look at NERC SIP, if you look at whatever framework you want, CMMC, like we did the analysis and found that anywhere between like 75 and 95% of all of the controls are prevention based. Right. 
So like we've told the community forever, do prevention. And then they divide up anywhere from 25 to 5% across detection, response and recovery. And And then we wonder like, why aren't we resilient? Like it's literally you gave them advice to only worry about prevention. And so my, my, my point there is I think IT security largely has a prevention bias. And I don't think the operations staff has been talked to like adults on that. I think they've been told like, well, you need to patch this system and install antivirus and update your passwords. That's three preventive controls. And so they're going to focus on those things. And multi-factor but authentication and then throwing out it, zero it, trust and all, all the stuff right. wrapped. All prevention. It's all prevention. It, and CISA, I mean, you have to have a role for prevention. But yep. when you look at like CISA these days, they're spending all their time there. Now they are rolling out logging and EDR. Which yep. is more on the hunting side, the detection. But, but even then, it's like it's like you need to implement MFA in this way, and then you need to yeah. do monitoring. It's like what 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 would you like us to monitor for what and what use cases yeah. and like it's very high level. But to go back real quick to the OT thing, and then I'll, I'll maybe pivot on the CISA one. The beautiful thing is that idea of detection and response is very core to operations if you break out of the security discussion. Mm -hmm. The ability to have uh, a temperature alarm to be able to detect when something is going wrong and the ability to respond to it, you know, like that's, it's it's there. Um, I love in the safety culture, when you look at a a HazOps process Mm -hmm. where they go in and try to assess a plant to determine is it unsafe and if it's unsafe, what would we do about it? Do we redesign portions of it? Do you put some detections and some safety systems that'll correct it? Like what is the process? They think about it from a scenario approach. They don't say, what's our fishing protection? And then the same way they don't say what's our temperature protection they say how would i think through unsafe events end to end and how would i deal with that and so if you actually tie into safety from that level of like the communication approach um, i think it goes very well but to your point on CISA, i i actually i actually kind of like uh what it's very preventative focus but i I will tell you there's something i like about it which is the simplicity of here's the thing we want you to do Mm -hmm. agreed and you have to do it And I don't agree with all the things that come out, like TSA's security regulations on pipelines. I I think we're atrocious. Like if you follow those regulations verbatim, you are shutting down pipelines. I promise you. Like it's they're not good. So it's like a zero risk approach. Not saying they're idiots. They well they they had everything from adopt SOAR to here is exactly how to implement a patch on this type of system. It was like all over the place, okay. and and it was very prescriptive. And so you actually can't do a lot of things. It's a lot of IT security controls. You should like if there's a flow meter off of a pipeline that literally you can't do anything to impact operations with it. Why are we obsessing about it? Or hey, here's a here's a, a vulnerability in a compressor station out in the middle of nowhere that has never been exploited. The vulnerability doesn't even add any new risk to the system, but now you've got to patch it in 35 days. Like what? Why, why are we pushing that? So like, it's the prescriptive nature that I mainly I don't like about it. But if you look at what CISA is doing, one of the things I like about what they're doing is it's saying, you know what? Please go do MFA. <laughs> it's it's sure they'll recommend other things, but if you watch Jen Easter, Jen Easterlin on Twitter, you watch yeah. you know Eric Gold telling these folks it's MFA, right. and I love that they're saying you got to do this thing because I think a lot of times infrastructure owners get FBI, DoD, DOE, uh, the base commander, you know, okay TSA, uh, every they have so many people come and say do these two or three things. That at the end of it, you're getting asked by ten different government agencies to do two or three different competing things, and you're just analysis paralysis at the end. So for the whole of government to say, have an instant response plan and tabletop exercise on ransomware and please implement NFA. Great. Let's go knock that one out. And then next year, talk about another one. Yeah. Well, and I think they just came out with the, uh, I don't know, it was the top 200 or 300 vulnerabilities got a patch within a couple of weeks. And I think- Yeah, I'm not that, saying everything's great. <laughs> but, but I think to your point, that's very prescriptive at least. Right. Hey, go patch yeah. this, right? I mean, God yeah. only knows how many vulnerabilities are out there, but they're saying, go do this. And with with MFA, I heard Jen also speaking, you know, 90, she, quoting her, I don't know where the data came from. 99% of, of uh, you know, if, if you're using MFA, you avoid 90, 99% of uh, the likelihood of being compromised right. essentially. Mm-hmm. Your, your your credentials being stolen. Okay. Yeah. There, I think there's, good some, to me. there's some data. <laughs> yeah. I think there's some data getting pulled from like ASD that they've done over the years in Australia on the four critical controls and so forth. But, but verifiably where you can implement MFA, Do you it. should be, it's right. one of the one universal controls, but like patching isn't the same to the point. Yeah. Like, 
we when we look at the when our team looks at the vulnerabilities and so we're a technology company but we have an intel team as well and when the intel team digs in and looks at it we found that only about seven percent of ics vulnerabilities a year are worth a damn at all wow. and, and so why are we running over to operations who are already constrained, already dealing with a lot of stuff, complaining about these 93%? Well, it's a CVSS you know, 9.3. Yeah, but does it actually have any ability to impact operations at all? Well, well no. Well, then, then move on to something else. Like, let's let's spend the resources on a risk-based approach and actually get some value there. And to your point on like the vulnerabilities set, it was go patch these. There's like nine different things you could do about a vulnerability. Patching is just one option. Right. Why are we being prescriptive about patching? Right. Well, and they don't even know where all the assets are, right? Well, that's the other thing. Ten when, plus when years into CDM on, on .gov, we can't even, we still don't have a baseline on, 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 you know, where all the systems and capabilities are, so. It, absolutely, and, and that's where I see people talking a lot about, like, SBOM, and, and for whatever's good for enterprise, feel free, don't care, and I don't, I don't, I'm not an enterprise security person, so I'm not going to critique it one way or the other, but on the operations side, like, a lot of the ransomware cases we get called into, Why? Not anything crazy. It's just they literally didn't know what was in their network. They had no visibility and identification, and there was prevention atrophy over the years. And then something they didn't realize they had got compromised, and boom, they got ransomware. I, I'm not concerned about SBOM. Like I'm concerned that nobody knows what's on their network. Like how how can you not you know have that and then jump to well, what's in the device? Like well, you gotta you gotta you gotta take it down a couple steps first. So yeah, I think. I think at times we talk to the community, whether it's government or practitioners or vendors, or whatever, about here's what, what you should be doing, community, but what level of maturity they're at, where are they at in their journey? Like it, it's very, very based on each individual company. And even within companies, individual groups and organizations. Oh, that's, that's, that's the other issue yeah. is when you look at the difference between enterprise security and OT security, you, enterprise security, here's my enterprise security project and a Gantt chart over four years with 30 controls and all this. It's like, dude, for every one IT network the oil company has, they have like 500 OT networks. Like you can't take this one enterprise project to roll out to the OT side of the house. It's like that's a lot of different plants and refineries and things. You, you can't treat it that way. So what should they do? Like how should they handle it then? Like what's, yeah. what's the multi-factor authentication of OT if there is a, such a thing? Yeah, if – if it's a remote connection, wherever possible, I would still roll out MFA. But if you look at, let, let's take it this way. If, if you look at uh, sort of the problem from two lens, one being Intel driven, which is what are the threats actually have done? Mm -hmm. I don't care about your new research and your you know cool thing you're going to show up black hat, just like ground truth reality, what's actually happened and consequence of whether or not it's actually happened, we know it could and it would have a big consequence of life, safety, similar. And you take it from an intel and a consequence perspective. If you look at the scenarios we can come up with in any given company, you're probably talking five or six scenarios. And if you look across those five or six scenarios um, and think about what controls were the most impactful, um, you will generally come to about five. You'll come to the fact that you need a defensible architecture. So if you've got one giant ITOT merge network or whatever, your instance is going to suck. And if you don't have span ports on a switch, well, you're not even going to monitor anything anyways, right? So you first come to defensible architectures. The second thing you'll come to is visibility and monitoring. Can I actually get network traffic analysis, east-west traffic, understand what's in my network, detect vulnerabilities, detect threats? Like you can get a lot of value out of just the monitoring category. Then you move into having uh, MFA on remote connections where you can. And if you can't, then you have compensating controls back in defensible architectures for it, like jump host or whatever. Then you get into a key vulnerability management program. Don't care about the 93%, but those 7%. Do I've got an internet-facing data historian that's got remote code execution on it? Yeah, I better fix that one. And then the last one is an ICS-specific instant response plan that you have tabletop exercises and similar about. Those five controls would put you into a world-class OT security program. You can go talk about all the other things, like what about application whitelisting? What about that? You go talk about all those things later, but do not pass go until you get those five. However, this is the interesting piece on industrial that goes to your question. I don't want those five everywhere. It, and it sounds bad to say that, but we've got some assets like a wellhead that might be generating $1,000 a month. Who cares? Why, why am I rolling out five security controls on that? Right. So for, for the next thing that needs to happen, which really to me is a executive level, you could be a board level conversation, but it's at least a CEO level bot in conversation, which is what are our high assets? What are our medium level assets? What are our low level assets mm -hmm. in terms of criticality? Factor in revenue, factor in health and safety data, factor in environmental data, make the master list one to a thousand of whatever it is in terms of like physical assets like plants. Figure out what that is. 
you might be a power company that's got some distribution of substations that are more critical than certain transmission substations. Figure out what that list is and then say, cool, we know right security is these five things as an example. Then I want to know that the top 25, 30, what is it? Let's have the, the cut line. So the top critical assets that are high are taken care of now. Right. Don't tell me at the end of the five-year journey that my lowest asset is protected at the same level as my highest asset when it took five years to get there. Like, go roll out good security at the high assets. Then we might find, based on revenue or cost or whatever else, we don't want to do all five at the mediums. Maybe you want to do three of those five. And you know what? In the lows, maybe it's one or two. Maybe we have a defensible architecture and an instant response plan, but we're not going to put in a bunch of monitoring and everything else at sites that aren't that critical. And, and the security team should be making sure that they're aware of the new scenarios that come over the years and determine, do we need to add anything? Do we need to adjust based on it? Or are we getting value out of the things we've already spent on? And the executives need to determine, we were okay with 25% before, but based on where the company is and transformation, whatever else, now we want to extend it down to 35%. Yeah. How do we move right. some of those medium class assets into high class assets? And if you can follow just that sort of, it's not, it's not easy, but if you can follow that right. simple framework, we have found it has been immeasurable change in these companies. But really, you're talking about standard risk management. It's just not being applied. It is standard risk management yeah. based on scenarios and understanding. But what is the most common thing that happens in instant response engagements for us? Hey, there, you've got 200 plants. Where would you like us to start triaging? Oh, I don't know. Well, which ones are your high? Well, to the know. finance group, it's these. To the risk group, it's yeah. this. To the, like, they haven't even thought through right what is important to the business to be able to have those conversations and they haven't rehearsed on what questions is your CRO, legal, everybody else going to need answered, your board answered to make sure the collection and the data that you even have in, in those plants mm -hmm. in the first place can facilitate those questions. And so there's, it's not like this is unheard of or completely novel in an approach. It's just, it's not getting done. And the way you're going to do it on OT is going to be different than what you do on your enterprise approach. Different stakeholders, different people involved, different threats, different risks, et cetera, et cetera. Rachel, what percent of operators do you think do this well? I mean, I feel like any number I say is going to be terrible, but I don't know, 20%. Holy uh, moly! Oh, I, I was going low? to go with I was going to go with three percent. Do it well. Oh, okay. Rob, well, Rob, what is what is the? Oh, oh, go ahead, Rachel. Go I was ahead. Being now that I aspirational. No, no, no. My, you, my you first want to live five. in a secure world. Yeah, That's exactly. Okay. That's okay. Exactly. That's optimism. I like optimism. <laughs> yeah, but she doesn't yeah, like I MFA. Think five, I think five percent is being optimistic. <laughs> Actually, she likes MFA, just not for herself on a lot of things, right, Rachel? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, Thank you, Eric. Rob, Rachel went with twenty percent, highly aspirational yeah. in my opinion. I went with three yeah. percent, which I thought was aspirational based on my experiences. What is the number based off of your knowledge and experience? Uh, I would say. I would say in places that we have visibility. So like, like I don't really know what's going on in Chinese infrastructure these days, Fair enough. Um, but I would say 5% is, is a very generous answer. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, that's the answer I normally give to folks, Okay, but it matters on what industry we're talking about. Right. Electric power industry in North America is moving at a more mature click rate speed, et cetera, than the, uh, food and beverage industry right. in Saudi Arabia. Right. And, and so there's a, there's a geo and industry vertical aspect to these things. And the, the defining feature to me of when an industry is doing well is, is two things. One, there is alignment at an executive level across pure companies. So you can try to solve for risk in your company all day long. But if you look at the electric sector as an example, they have the electric sector subcoordinating council, CEO-led group, 80% of the CEOs in the country are all part of it. They all get together and they talk about this stuff and there's alignment. And the second thing is right, wrong, and different, don't care what anyone wants to say about government, your government partners for critical infrastructure are really important. And so when you have alignment that government is engaging industry in an open and transparent discussion about the risks it sees. Why do we see these risks? What kind of outcomes we want to see? But they stay out of the how and they leave the how to an industry that is collaborating together on how does it mean to actually accomplish those goals. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of really good movement and you would get above the 5%. Like if we look at 
uh, the electric power space in the United States, uh, by numbers only, it's not 5%, but by regional footprints, it's well above 5%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is like a Southern company is doing a lot more than a hundred different small co-ops in terms of the meters it's serving. doesn't mean the co-op's not important, but just footprint wise, um, I would say that it's well above 5%, by numbers, well below 5%. But you start talking again about what's going on in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, if it's not FDA related, it's not happening. And right. so I, I'd say 5% is extraordinarily generous. Which is crazy because if you think about electrical generation, I mean, we need power to do things. Right. Right. And and if, if somebody attacked that, the country would respond in some way, I would hope. But if you oh, think- I don't think so. What's that? I don't think, I don't think so. Uh, maybe. Well, I said I, I, I would think hope. This, I think this dream that the military is going to come in and swing in is a uh, fantasy. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm looking more like <laughs> colonial pipeline where, as oh, I've said oh, before, like, oh, yeah. nobody no. expected There's, the president of the United States, right. in my opinion, to get involved no. when they, right. when they totally launched fair. a ransomware attack against colonial pipeline, right? So the government totally stepped fair. in there. Yeah, I'm not expecting the Marines to ne- necessarily. No, I, yeah, but, there's, but there's a lot of your critical infrastructure community members that have been told that. Mm-hmm. Like, not just like yeah. Rob Lee says no. I mean, like military commanders and stuff have come over. I, I worked with one. I hope this isn't too descriptive. One space-based company that the CEO was convinced that if there was ever a cyber attack on their space-based assets and the control systems, that U.S. government was going to respond. Who did he think said, was going to respond? Where are you getting that? Yeah, but Commerce? I was like, what, do you, what do you mean? And where are you getting? <laughs> yeah. And they were like, no, the military. They'll, they'll go to war over it. And I'm like, said who? <laughs> oh yeah, the, the, the general of whatever in this like combatant commands. It wasn't Spacecom at the time, but one of the combatant commands, Northcom or something. He told me over dinner, I'm like you do know generals don't declare war, right? Like that's not. Yeah. Like, there's no power in fact, there. They don't like, even they, really they operate on the sta- in the states, right? There's no power. It feels like Lord of the Rings, like you have no power here. Like the military (laughs) does not get to decide where or who it engages. And I was like, dude, you're wrong. He's like, no, no, no. General so-and-so swore to me. I'm like, does it? That's not happening, man. And (laughs) so so, so, there are a lot of infrastructure owners who believe that there's this backstop that doesn't exist. Right. So, but if, if we lose power, that's a problem. Right. I mean, we're talking lives in many cases. But so I'm with you on it's a problem and it's it. I worry about the psychological impact sometimes more than the real impact of like maybe we lose distribution grid in a small portion of D.C. That is enough to swing elections in terms of how people are scared about it. Forget the loss of life. Colonial pipeline guys are filling Ziploc or or plastic bags with fuel. I mean, some irrationality exists. That absolutely. So 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 I I get that. But pick a pharmaceutical company. We know yeah. they're targeted by China, right? China has right. a massive problem. Just pick on something like cancer. They've got the biggest cancer problem yep. in the world. They have motive to steal intellectual property. Right. What I don't understand is when, when a, a pharmaceutical company doesn't protect their intellectual property, their systems well, because you know the government's not doing much of anything there when your IP is stolen. Mm-hmm. It's just right. gone and, and that right. is your future. Like, right. and, and to yeah. me, Rob, that's more tangible for a pharma mm-hmm. organization to understand than a, a regional electric co-op, right? Who, who may for, think for sure. they saw Red Dawn, right? And, and they're just going to 2021 modern version. The Russians aren't paratrooping in anymore. They're coming mm-hmm. in via cyber, but right. the government will be there to protect me. When you're talking IP, I think most businesses have a better understanding of the risk of IP loss. But right. what you're saying think, is not really. I think somewhere in their organization they do. I bet you there's a CFO or a VP of operations or somebody that could articulate right, that. Right, but it doesn't translate. The, the actual risk to this is, we need to do something to protect that IP because that's not getting translated out. It's, it's, it's in I, the 10K was, as a risk to the business. I was in a manufacturing company where we just went through this, where they have intellectual property that, that the CFO is chiefly aware that the bottom line is a billion dollars, like minimum wow. estimate is okay. a billion. And when security, first of all, I don't think there was alignment at the executive level on that, but on the the uh, security piece of it, they're like, here's what we're doing on our enterprise security programs. And look at all this. We need to top off these our insider threat program, blah, 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 blah. And like, I, again, stopped them like, you know, the intellectual properties in the manufacturing side, everything you're talking about is enterprise. And they're like, oh, so that none of those things are going to help. I'm like, I'm not saying it's not going to help, but it's not 
it's not the problem. But then there was a complete misalignment on what was the intellectual property. So the security folks started thinking, oh, there's a recipe that could be stolen. And I'm like, I guarantee you not. And they're like, no, 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 Rob. It's, it's, it's the ingredient list. I'm like, I don't think it is. You should talk to your plant folks. We brought in the plant folks. And they're like, what? The ingredient list? No, no. It's the way we produce it. It's the manufacturing it's the line methods. itself. It's the efficiency. Exactly. It's the methods. And they're like, oh, crap. We're not even, we're not looking at that at all. I'm like, yep. And, and so it's like, I would say you're right that intellectual property theft is very tangible, but it doesn't mean it translates into IT for SOT. It doesn't right. mean it translates into what is the intellectual property? How would we protect it? And again, I'm not trying to put the security industry down by any means. There's wonderful folks here, but what does every security person do going into a company? Oh, well, here's our top critical controls on patching and this, and, that, and, they, and they just apply it whole Everywhere. meal anyways. Right. And it's like, that's not necessarily tailored at all to what we're trying to solve. If I'm a security person, I go into any company in the world day one and I start asking about what's our vulnerability management program and are we encrypting our data at transit and rest and what are we doing on EDR? I would sound like a pro. And those three things I just mentioned have zero to do in, in its entirety with OT security discussion. Wow. Blowing your mind, Rachel? It, it really is. Want to want to lower the twenty percent slightly, just a little bit, maybe. I, I mean, I have to admit, my come my join first, Rob and I on the other side. First, Rachel, you had to go first. What a bait! You know, like That's what do you terrible. think it is? I know an answer. I know. <laughs> you know, five did think, pop in into fairness, my head in my first, but I thought surely it couldn't be five. No, it's yeah. gotta be it couldn't higher. be that bad. Of course, yeah. it's lower. I think, um, in all fairness, again, I threw my number out before I made <laughs> but, her answer. The, disis the disassociation, though, that we, we must be careful here is just because that's what it is right. does not mean anybody has done wrong. Right. And, and, and that is a real hard nuance to get. Of Again, if you go back to where we were, when we made the decisions, how they propagate, the standards, the frameworks, the guidance. You look at our infrastructure owner operator community, we're rocking. Yeah. We need to change because things have changed. Right. We've got to do better because we now understand more. But but it's always like these 5% numbers. I'll, I get scared to throw them out in front of Congress. Like if I, if when every now and then I'll go like testify or whatever and like they'll ask that question. I'm like, oh, I don't want to say this because like some poor CEO of a power company is going to get it. I can't believe you're not protecting <laughs> nationals again, but they're following every piece of guidance right. they've been given and they're doing tons of right things. So I always try to throw in there that our community is awesome. We've just yeah. got to change because our world has changed. Well, we, we're I, focused on the wrong things. Right. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's interesting you brought up the testimony because I think this is always a, a fascinating topic when it comes to Congress and, you know, because there's an education component, right? I mean, it's, this is not easy stuff to understand. And, you know, so when you're testifying, I think in July you testified before the, the House of Representatives. I mean, how, how do you balance that to make them truly understand the landscape and, and the level of threat and the work that needs to be done? Yeah, so you're right. Congressmen and women and others have, you know, farm aid and everything else they got to deal with. Like cyber is one component of it. Then it's IT versus OT something like, whoa, gosh. So first up, when you go testify, there's a reason they want you to testify, right? There's right. some topic. This one was ransomware. And so the first half of your testimony has got to be grounded in, you came to this meeting expecting this, here's what I'm delivering right. on that topic. Then you can introduce, if you're lucky, two, maybe three more talking points. Mm -hmm. And and my talking points were really around trying to help them understand that we didn't have a good understanding of the problem. Right. I don't want to get into the specifics. Sure. I don't want to get in front of like, here's a model that works in this standard right. and you do these five controls. Um, but number one for them is understanding, uh, one of the things I want to position is that we don't have full alignment and understanding of the risk right. anyways, period. And and I love our federal partners. I came from the government, mm -hmm. you know, cut me deep enough, it's red, white, and blue. That being said, vendors get in front of Congress and they try to be objective because they know if I'm a vendor, I can't get in there in front of pitch. Nobody wants to pitch Congress. Right. Like you need to be objective. When government agencies get in front of Congress, that is their funding source. Right. Right. And, and I'm not trying to put them down, but all they do is pitch. Right. <laughs> like that's it of like, we're experts. Here's what, you know, I need extra budget in the CISA. Well, it's like their private equity. Right. EPA. <laughs> it, it's, they're going for their venture round right. yeah. and, and it is, and it's not malicious and they've been asked to do that mm -hmm. and they're not bad people for doing it, but it's very much, I'm here from the government the government can help. If you give me resources, I can help more. Right. And so one of the things I try to dispel is this idea that anybody's got a monopoly on the problem. Right. And so one of the, one of the talking points I've taken to Congress a number of times is you do know through investments with the government, but you do know the expertise on OT cybersecurity is not in the government, right? And they're like, no, 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 we look at all these experts. I'm like, no, those are your IT security experts, or these are that, or right. this is, 
OT security expertise is at the infrastructure and owner and operator level. They're the yeah. ones doing the mission. And just that one change mm-hmm. changes a whole lot about how you're going to ask questions, who okay. you're going to ask questions to. It changes it from these idiots, let's go regulate them, to, oh, maybe we need to ask them what they're doing. <laughs> and, and that one oh, thing yeah. is like a strategic shift that's important. So I, I, hold on, I have, a, I have a quick, oh, go ahead, go ahead, finish up. And then no, I was going to say, the second finish. talking point that I took to them was the government and its roles and responsibilities, which it has some, which are poorly defined, but they exist. Their role and responsibility, in my opinion, is to define the why and the what. Why do we care about this thing in the first place? You know, what's the risk that we see? And, and what would we like the outcome to be? You know, I want to increase the ability to detect and respond in our critical infrastructure, whatever it is. But to find the why, so there's alignment on the risk, and then from a national security perspective, and help me understand the what. And again, in the context of national security, I shouldn't be telling a CEO how to manage business risk. But hey, power company, pharma company, whatever, you have business risk, do whatever you want, and you got national security risk. On the national security risk, here's the why, here's the what. But leave the how to the infrastructure owners and operators. Don't go tell the pipeline industry how to implement security. There's not gonna be one answer that benefits all the pipeline industry, let alone across all of infrastructure. So my two talking points there largely were, go understand that you've got partners in the private sector that have more expertise on this and they have a voting, at, you know, they have a seat at the table that you gotta consider them. And government's role and responsibility is not a flyaway instant response kit. We've got plenty of firms that do that. But really alignment around the why and the what and leaving the how to the private sector. So when you get in front of Congress, it's that level of messaging. Right. And I, at least in my experience doing it, like that works really, really well for them. Fascinating conversation. I, I'm yes. thinking about it from an IT perspective, which is where a lot of my background is. And when you start to get to the state and local level, there's less capability. There are fewer resources, less control, less understanding of the problem, right? You don't have the budgets to hire. You don't, you don't mm-hmm. have the budgets for the systems. You don't understand. What you're saying, though, Rob, is with OT, you almost flip it. The strength is at the edge. It's it's with the companies mm-hmm. that are sitting. If you're the if, if if you're the congressperson from Oklahoma, national cybersecurity, you probably feel a million miles away from being able to mm-hmm. control it. Mm-hmm. But if if you have power generation or something in your district, they have the, the bulk of the strength to protect is right there. Mm-hmm. Is Absolutely. what you're saying. Yep. It's, it's, it's an entirely one of the, different argument. One of the greatest companies I've ever worked with is Salt River Project. They're a, a, not a huge company. They're, they're public power and public water. But that team knows everything about what matters to the operations side of the house. They're service oriented in what they do. And they don't think about security as in this, like, this is a security risk. Let's do it. They got it. Oh, man, if I'm forced that update... There's nobody at the field to go and reset it if something goes wrong and it's going to call somebody in on a, uh, uh, another 12-hour right. shift. You know, we yeah. better not do that one. Here's what we can do differently, which actually takes into consideration. And they think through that stuff that you're not going to think through from D.C. Right. And, and the operator sitting at that SCADA system, even non-security, knows what's physically possible on that system or not right. in a way that policy isn't going to get there. So the expertise is at the edge, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to influence it and whatever else. And you, you talk about state and local level. I think there's a, you know, it's always interesting to me where one of the places, I, I love CISA, but one of the places that I feel so bad for CISA is anything that goes wrong at all, ever, full stop, in terms of cybersecurity, Jenny Shilley or Chris Krebs or somebody's oh, yes, in front of yeah. what are you doing about this? <laughs> Hell, even like, when it goes not, well with the election, you still can get tweeted and fired. Exactly. They're not resourced to do the cybersecurity mission. Right. No one is. Right. So what lane of it are they going to take? And I'll see, again, it, it comes off like I'm critiquing CISA, but I actually just feel bad for them when I'll see them in front of Congress. And it's like, why don't you have a flyaway team to go help Chevron or whoever if they have an incident? And it's like, what? Because they can depend on Dragos, Crowdstrike, Mandy, and any, anybody. Pick a, you know, throw a dart. Pick one. They got everybody. What, why are we asking them to go do that? But... Are there state and local infrastructure problems? Are there public water companies that have nothing? Are there election issues? Like CISA could go help those out. Like I want to see CISA going and helping out, you know, Texas Public Utilities Commission right. and, and yes. the state and local level long before they're going and talking to Southern Company of Fortune 1000 about here's what we can do for you. Like that that's a better, you know, investment of resources. But but quickly on that topic too, they they this is the the piece that gets slightly frustrating, cybersecurity is not the number one problem. And I, I love our cybersecurity discussions, 
in the electric power industry at the beginning of this year, there was a 100-day action plan that kicked off from the White House to go increase the ability to do monitoring in our infrastructure. Beautiful. That's where the electric power industry was. It was a smart move, an amazing move by the Biden administration and Neuenberger and her folks. Well done. Worked out really well. But now they're talking about going to the water industry and doing that. And like, I can't do that. I'm like, well, what do you mean? I don't understand. The electric, this was really successful because the electric industry had the infrastructure built over the years to be there. But there are over 50,000 water and wastewater systems in the United States. Most of those facilities, you hear about Oldsmar or whatever, most of those facilities don't have an IT staff. Forget security. So how am I going to take somebody who's got a shared IT resource between four companies and tell them that they need to roll out advanced cybersecurity monitoring? That's not where they are. Right. I wish they were. Right. We've got to we got to talk about how do you go from here to there. You can't just go out and say roll out MFA. They're like, what? What's MFA now? Yeah. Well, MFA roll it out. Well, hold on. I'm the one guy that's got to get access to four different regional plants and by EPA regulations, if a pump fails and I'm not there within 60 minutes, it's a reportable incident, and I can't physically drive to all those sites. I got to have Team Viewer to get access to it. Oh no, no, you got to use this and say, well, shit, that the budget for that program is three times the amount of revenue that we generate at this water facility in a year. And so there's a whole economics thing long before the security discussion at some of these infrastructure players. Yeah, and I, I can just think in some of the most remote parts of the country, who, is, I mean, good people, don't get me wrong, but but I mean, try explaining something like even ransomware to them in many right. cases. I, I, we've got an electric utility, and I hope they don't mind me calling them out, but Cordova, Alaska. I think they provide power to like 2,000 people or something. Okay. And their CEO is their security guy because he's taken it up and he's and he's he's serious about it. And they've implemented phenomenal security, especially for, you know, that size of infrastructure. And they've done extremely well. He has an interest. Because he cares about it. Yeah. He has an interest and he cares about it. But why aren't we helping there? <laughs> like that's that's where I go like, okay, the like really that's our strategy is to hope for the clays of the world to get this done. Mm-hmm. Like when it's smaller infrastructure sites, you know, how much your public utility commission will allow a water, gas, or electric player to resource says more about their security than any policy framework, regulation, whatever ever will. Mm-hmm. And so we can't depend on the clays of the world. We got to figure out what's the resourcing challenge. And it's not yelling at people for not taking it seriously. It's understanding what is the problem and what is their mission. And it is, again, your investor-owned utilities, rock on, protecting the world. They're amazing. It's well above the 5%. Your thousand smaller public power sites that don't have the same level of resourcing, right. that's that's not a yell at them cybersecurity discussion. That's where is the resourcing. Try convincing, I'm from Coleman, Alabama. Try convincing the Coleman board, the Public Utility Commission side of the house, that Coleman, Alabama rural cooperative should raise the um, electric bill by 10 cents per person, which comes off like nothing, but tell them that they should raise it by 10 cents per person because one day Russia might hack into it. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Give me that dime happening. back. No. Yeah. So, so you, you say, why aren't we helping them? Oh, what I, would I'm you, talking about the federal discussion now. No, I, I, like, I know. I would, what would yeah. you recommend? Like a couple, well, couple ideas. First, First, I would I would be very thoughtful with the resourcing. And what I mean by that is we like to throw a lot of money uh, at programs. So here's another hundred million dollars to the Department of Energy to go right. come up with some answer. And it's always on what's the next gen thing like next gen. We haven't rolled out last gen. Let's like let's just do any something. Gen. Right, right. Any gen. And so to me, helping is figuring out the couple. If you only had two hands to play, what are those two hands? Right. One of them goes down the Public Utilities Commission. Mm-hmm. A public utilities commission is a good organization that is there because your utilities are a monopoly. And if you didn't have public utilities commission, no matter how much I love our infrastructure players, abuse would happen. Mm -hmm. It would. When you're in a monopoly, abuse happens. And so to have a public utilities commission that is standing in the way of abuse that happens for your local utilities is a really smart thing. But what is the cyber savviness of that public utility commission? Non-existent. And when a power company gets in front of them, another amazing power company, Southern California Edison, no, sorry, Southern California Edison is great too, but Simpra is another really good one. Simpra got in front of their public utility commission board and without getting into anything confidential, just said, hey, some of the things you're asking us to do are adverse to security that we've been told at a federal level not to do. And the public utility commission ghosted them on it. And from the public utilities commission's perspective, it was, oh, here's the big power company just trying to do something to screw over people. And and no matter how much you build trust and whatever else, that comes up every now and then because their role is 
the regulator. And, and so go back to resourcing. I don't need $200 million to come over to DOE. I need CISA to go talk to public utilities commissions and say, Hey, here's what right looks like. So if your companies come to you asking you for platinum level gold coating on every distribution substation, it's probably not a good investment. But if it meets this classification quantification, it's these type of initiatives. Here's the why and the what you really ought to pay attention to them. We need the influence there. That one motion would cost the federal government zero, and it would probably be the most impactful thing right. to cybersecurity could do at the, at, the, at the utilities level. So it's what are those pressure points that the why and the what and the amplification that we see at a national security level can be influenced across our communities? That's impactful. But they're not sexy like a $2 billion investment program <laughs> on no. the no. latest anti-ransomware tool set. If I can give $200 million to the Department of Energy to come up with a new AI-based tool, I'm yeah. going to get another vote. Like, oh, it looks good. That's sexy. At least it, it'll get reported at least. Yeah. It'll get reported and program managers get excited about it and it's look at what we did and whatever else and it's not going to help. And again, I not to be political one way or the other, but I'm not a big fan of using taxpayer money to like bankroll new companies. Like that's not yeah. the best use of taxpayer money half the time. And like there is no lack of venture capital for good ideas on cybersecurity. So right. you want to go bankroll a new nuclear uh, reactor because we're changing our green energy portfolio in this country and nuclear energy is really good for base load and there's not a market there. Go do that. But cybersecurity tools, there's more than enough market. You don't need taxpayers to front load that market. And so right. These are some of the things that balance out. Okay, so we have to wrap up, but I, I, have, I have one question here that I'll turn it over to Rachel because I'm sure she has a, another half dozen or so. The, 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 electri- the, not the, the election in 2020, CISA seemed to take a pretty good approach to it. Uh, you know, obviously it was a whole of government issue. Um, but like critical infrastructure, I feel there was an edge component. They had to work with state and local components. They really didn't have power, even though everybody thinks, you know, the Marines would come in if anybody messed with it and ever, as we've talked about, but they had to influence, they had to educate, they had to be available in case of an issue. They had, but, but, but a lot of it was really getting the message out, the, the, the guidance and, and it, and it seems to have worked pretty well, at least from everything I've seen. Is that a fundamentally uh, appropriate model probably needs some adoption for helping with these OT capabilities that are that are distributed to the edge. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. The when Chris Krebs was there and ran that playbook, when I behind the scenes talking to some of our members in the Senate, I told them take that, bottle it resell the crap out of it like that yeah. what you just did that lightning in a bottle capture run that play another hundred times i like the way you where, said playbook where what they did was exactly yeah. partner amplify yes. hey let's figure out where the state and locals need help and they did a great job and didn't get close to the size and scope of that problem and and to me a lot of the election inf- infrastructure security discussions is is restoring confidence yeah and for CISA to right. be apolitical and to be the cybersecurity focus of the government to partner with these players and help amplify that story and go, you can have confidence in our elections. That's a really, really important mission. And no vendor is doing that. And they can't. Right. If Drago shows up at a power company and I say, I've got the ball on an instant response, I'm not trying to pick a fight here, but I guarantee you more people would have confidence in Drago's doing that IR case than CISA. But for, for Drago's to show up and go, hey, election and security committee, um, we can protect you versus CISA. CISA is going to be a thousand times better to do that. Of course. And, and the, the confidence that comes with that is, is important. And so to your question on like OT, can you do that with EPA, like partner with EPA and right. then go reach out to the local water, you know, companies and not private owned companies, you know, American water, aqua America, these fantastic privately owned water companies need to do their own security. There's revenue and generation capacity there for it. There's other things they can get from federal partners, but it's not, let me show up and do an assessment, but to reach down to the public utilities commission, work with them closely, say, Hey, here's the problem your water companies have. And this is what we need to change in the ecosystem to allow them to foster. That's not a, let me show up and run a tool in your network. That's let me help change the conversation. And or even provide you with tools. Right. I could see CISA going out. Here's a $500 million investment in tools for OT, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it going nowhere, maybe. of course. Maybe. And so I, 
there's there's definitely things to explore there, but can they pick it up and use the tools? Or do they have the people to process the staffing? Like there's there's lots yeah. of conversations there, but I still like that anyways. Of if you're going to go down the level of of giving resources after we've established the pressure points in summer, because five hundred million dollars is going to run out real fast. Right. But after we've shown that investments can be made, is it okay to get to that level? Sure, it is. But I don't want to pick a tool. I don't want to favor a vendor. I don't want, hey, right. local water company, here's our point of view. And this is where I think government always shies away from picking winners and losers at all. They go, you can do anything you want, but half of those choices are bad, but we're not going to tell you which one. <laughs> That's stupid. But they can be able to say, hey, you got to be this tall to ride the ride. This is the framework. And look, there's like 50 vendors that meet these qualifications. Go pick from one of those and right. we'll resource it. That's a perfectly fine approach. Guidance. 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 Yep. Yes. Okay, Rachel. I mean, we, we talk about supply chain. I, I'm, we're not going to, I'm not, not going to pivot us too much. We talk about supply chain in this country and we don't have a position at a federal right. government of being able to pick winners and losers. It's like, um, you have no supply chain security. Like, let's stop pretending when you, when you can identify that there's a Chinese based company that is actively doing things to subvert the ch supply chain. And we're afraid to come out and say it publicly as a government. It's like, right. we don't have supply chain security. Let's move on. Anyway, sorry, Rachel, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, you know, because I know we're coming up on time here and I just want to be respectful of, of time. But, um, you know, I just have to say thanks, Rob. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. I lived in New York for 15 years and on the subway, there were all these signs, see something, say something. Uh, and, and I love that that's kind of your origin story for Dragos and, and that you are, you know, you're going in front of Congress, you're having the conversations, you're doing the education, because I, I think that's the really critical element here is people just don't know. They just don't understand. And, and it's, it's so encouraging to see, you know, folks like you who are out there, you know, kind of trying to address the issue. And do you kind of have any words of wisdom, you know, kind of as a close for folks who who maybe see an issue but just don't know how to get started to to maybe try and address it? Yeah, no, thanks for that. I, I think the best thing we can all do is have some empathy. Like these infrastructure owners and operators and places, that are, they're just wonderful people. And it's, it's easy to get out in front and go, TSA did something stupid in this regulation. But you got to add the, but the members of TSA, there was like four of them that were tasked with this national right. level problem. They did the best that they could with what they had. Like exactly. they're not bad people. The outcome may have been undesirable, but you know what? They're good folks. Let's figure out what the problem was and address that. And so I think too often in InfoSec or whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of vilification that happens. We right. love the idea that there's a bad guy. Yes. And and there's just really good people trying to handle really hard problems and a little bit of empathy and an understanding of what is the mission, not what do I want to come and pitch, not what's the security control I'm passionate about, not where's my bias, but like what's the mission we're trying to solve? Let's learn that first and then everything else will fall into place. Like that's that's what gets you to a good place, I think. Oh. What a great way to end the podcast. I love this. I love this. Always ending on a happy note. We rarely end yeah. on an upbeat, happy note. So this is a this is a good one. <laughs> oh, okay. So with that, you know, thanks everybody for joining this week's podcast. Thank you so much, Rob, for for joining us today. I mean, just amazing insights and uh, and I can't wait to share this transcript with folks because there's a lot of lessons learned here. And, and I love that we can kind of share them out to the world and, and more people can learn a little bit more about how we're, how we're truly going to get a handle on this issue. But you got to understand it first. Uh, so until, until next time, guys, uh, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 